0: Happy Thursday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Rocketeer Minute where each and every day Monday through Friday we go over one minute of the greatest adventure movie Disney has ever made in 1991 Disney movie The Rocketeer.
1: I am one of your hosts Jim O'Kane of tvdads.com and I'm Hal Bryan senior editor at the Experimental Aircraft Association here in Oshkosh Wisconsin not to mention a lifelong airplane nerd.
2: And I am Brian Feeze, your guest host for the day. I'm a writer, cartoonist, uh, creator of the award-winning Mom's Cancer, Whatever Happened to the World of Tomorrow, The Last Mechanical Monster, and other comics you can look up online. And I'm thrilled to be here today.
0: And, and, and Brian, you, have, you are the one that is partially responsible for this uh, podcast because you brought uh, Hal and me together. for. A, you, you did a, a perfect match uh,
1: online. So it, yes, You created family. this monster.
0: Yes. Yeah, so. <laughs>
1: Jim,
2: when you told me what you, were, what you were up to, I said, there's only one man for that job. And uh, I'm, I'm I'm happy to do
1: it. I just so, sat up a lot straighter. I just want <laughs> you to know that <laughs> that is excellent. And I've got to say, uh, just let me gush for a minute, and then I'll, I'll we'll try to get past this. Um, but uh, for everybody listening, if you uh, if you haven't uh, read or enjoyed any of Brian's work. You're missing out. I have three uh, three graphic novels that for me are tied for first place for my all-time favorites. Uh, that would, of course, be uh, The Rocketeer, if you want to consider the collection a, a specifically a graphic novel, uh, Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, and Brian's Whatever Happened to the World of Tomorrow. Uh, I've lost track, Brian, of how many uh, copies I've bought as gifts uh, to give to friends, and you're always kind enough to uh, help me get those uh, signed and all that sort of thing, but but uh boy it is uh, it's it's on par with with the best of the best
2: oh thank you hal i'm i'm keeping an exact count after actually and
1: uh, you know, <laughs> no you am you've i falling been, behind <laughs>
2: no you have been a huge champion i can't tell you how much i appreciate it so it's uh, it's great to get to talk to you and talk talk rocketeer
0: yeah You're and here. Uh, we are we are right here at the beginning we well, you know still in the opening credits of of the movie as that beautiful james horner score comes out i I swear, every time I I watch this movie and and hear the score, I want to go out and learn how to play the French horn. It, it,
1: <laughs> it, it just it, makes the, me want to go out and fly an airplane. And I can't tell you how many times I've had this playing and, you know, uh, through the intercom system or something in an airplane when I've gone and gone and flown. It's just it's just the perfect open up the hangar on a pretty sunny morning and go out and fly music. This this opening theme is just flawless. Ah,
0: uh, it, it it's keyed perfectly with the uh, the, the sight of the GB. Uh, turning around getting ready uh, to take off there as uh, Cliff's lining it up on the uh, uh, at the end of the runway and uh, we get uh, we're still in the endless credits here so we're looking at uh, initially we're looking at uh, the executive producer Larry Franco. He he is kind of a, an av- adventure excitement movie uh, maven. He's done movies as varied as uh, Escape from New York, uh, The Thing, Batman Begins, uh, ever-popular big trouble in little china which is also a, a movies by minute uh, neighbor of ours and uh you know things like Starman. uh he also produced uh, october sky which uh we'll be talking a little bit more about when uh when we get to the director credit later on this week but yeah definitely he has a certain type of film that he gets behind and, and obviously this is one of them uh adventure uh Person, you know, romance, uh, just a, a good popcorn movie. That you know, the kind of movie that you're going to like. So, if you see Larry Franco at the beginning, there's a good chance if you like this kind of movie, you're going to like all of his other kind of movies.
2: That's a that's a very nice IMDb listing. I, I do. I wasn't aware of him, his role in those films. But man, if you if you had a career that consists of those movies, you've done all right.
0: No kidding. Yeah. And we're we're still looking at that that hero Narita. Uh, we just talked about him yesterday, but it just every single frame of this movie. If you if you pause it. It all it looks like just an epic. Uh, you you want to paint it. it. It does look like the comic book. I mean, it's just it it has that whole uh, that whole Dave Stevens feel. Who, by the way, is our next uh, our next credit here. And Brian, you are in the biz, uh, and I know that Dave Stevens is quite a, a landmark artist and cartoonist. Uh, so, can we talk? Let's let, let's talk about Dave Stevens.
2: Oh, I'd love to. Uh, I I think that's why I'm here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Dave Stevens was was, uh, and I say past tense because unfortunately he died uh, quite young, age 52, of 52, leukemia in 2008. But uh, Dave Stevens is is one of those guys who uh, whose impact and influence uh, it is hugely out of proportion to the amount of work he actually did. I mean, he, he had a very he had a reputation of being very meticulous. Uh, form which one could take the word slow and as a result his body of work was was quite small just mostly the rocketeer you know, plus uh, some painted covers and some you know really beautiful prints and things like that but you know the fact that people are still admiring it and talking about it and being influenced by it 20 30 years later uh is just really remarkable he's uh, there are a few people like that he, he in that respect he reminds me of a comic book artist named Jim Steranko And Stranko worked in the 60s for Marvel and did a a couple of books. He did uh, uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., he did some Captain Americas. Not a huge body of work, but he set a very high benchmark for how good comic books could be. And I I think Stevens did likewise with The Rocketeer. So I, I I can keep talking. I'll I'll keep talking <laughs> well, all day. Is I mean
0: this is, I mean this, he is the, he's the linchpin of this movie. I mean this this movie came out of his work, and that it uh, the Rocketeer had come out in the uh, early '80s, and from what I understand, uh, Stevens had originally planned when he when he first designed the Rocketeer that this would make a great movie.
2: Yeah, well you know, and he came out of the movies. He came out of his early career was. Um, after he, he did some newspaper work on Tarzan and Star Wars newspaper strips, but he was an animator. He worked on the Super Friends series, and he did uh, he did um, storyboards for Raiders of the Lost Ark and that kind of thing. So he had those influences very early, the influences of the great comic book illustrators or comic strip illustrators of the 30s like Hal Foster, um, and it kind of tinged through this Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, you know, feel of of the classic movie serials. So he had all this kind of feeding into what he was putting into the Rocketeer. And you know, I think it's I think it's fair to call his style retro, but I wanna I want to dig a little deeper into that and and make a fine point that, you know, it's retro in the sense that it looks like illustration and pinup art done in the thirties, the forties, the fifties, but it's uniquely his in that no one in the thirties, forties or fifties was actually drawing comics like that. You know, if you look at actual comic books from those times, the the drawing, the art was very crude for the most part. There were a few masters doing good things, but most comic books drawn back then just just looked uh, like they were done with blunt crayons, uh, because at the time, comic books was kind of, or were kind of the, the bottom of the commercial art food chain, and they didn't usually attract top talent. So, what Stevens did that is interesting to me as a cartoonist was, he modeled or flavored his work after the very best illustration art being done in those days. And he translated it into the storytelling medium of comics in which it wasn't done at all in those days. So it's like he, he evokes the times without without aping what was actually being produced in those days.
1: You know, it's really interesting you, you pointed out like that, uh, Brian, because... Um, you know, in particular with with uh, his work on the Rocketeer, and, and and as that translates to the film, it's uh, you know yes, it's it's retro just as you said, but it's um, it, there's reverence as well, which you don't always see. It would be easy to to produce a story like this and sort of mock and make fun of it, and and, and very quickly. I think I've 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 said something very similar about uh, about whatever happened to the world of tomorrow. You know, you're looking back at the New York World's Fair and all the events that transpire there and, and giving that sort of, that wonderful retrofuturism. But uh, you do it, uh, and, and forgive the comparison, but you, you and Stevens have that similar approach in my mind. You're doing it without being ironic. Uh, you mentioned aping. Um, it's the same, it's that same sort of feeling. We can look back and we can appreciate it. We can celebrate it. We can improve on it without taking anything away from, uh, you know, from the romance of it all.
2: Oh yeah, uh, Stephen's love for that style was very sincere. There was—I don't think there was an insincere artistic bone in his body. If you right. read interviews with him, he—he he loved this stuff. It was—it was passion for him. If he happened to sell a few copies, great. But the Rocketeer was was a project of love for him. Uh, he loved these characters. He loved the time, the era, the feel. Uh, it it was—it was a totally sincere effort on his
0: part. Yeah, and he he did design the original story of the Rocketeer is more like a screwball comedy. I mean, there's a lot of you know over the top characters that are. I mean, they're drawn they're drawn well, but they're you know they they do have a comedic talent to them. They're, they're slightly different to make it palatable for Disney audiences. They had to change a lot of it. Most specifically, uh, Cliff Cliff's girlfriend is no longer uh, the the pinup model Benny Page, but now she's he, she's a more a little bit more wholesome girl from. From the uh, orange, uh, from Redlands. Can, can
2: we talk about Betty Page just a little bit? I don't yes, know if you, why you already not? have, but <laughs> no, no, no. If you're going to talk about Dave Stevens and the Rocketeer, you got to talk about Betty Page. And right. and Stevens had this love and affinity, a genuine love and affinity for vintage cheesecake art, you know, the kind of things guys painted on their bomber jackets and put on their airplane noses during World War II. Uh, that was really his specialty. If you Google Dave Stevens, you're going to see. Uh, you know thirty, thirty seven hundred 3700 pictures of pretty pretty girls pretty voluptuous women um and, and particularly he loved betty page uh, and and not all your listeners may know but betty page was a real life woman she was a pinup model in the 50s and she had this this jet black hair with bangs a real iconic look uh, if you're over the age of 18 listening to this podcast <laughs> google betty page b e t t i e and you'll you'll see the picture and you say oh her you know you, you'll you instantly recognize her in in uh 2012 time magazine named her one of the 100 all-time fashion icons and uh, what made betty stand out was was she had this kind of wholesome innocent attitude she brought to these these fairly lurid photo shoots you know she just looked right at you through the camera and just seemed to be having the best time so in the early rocketeer comics like like you just said jim uh Stevens gave Cliff Secord this girlfriend who looked exactly like Betty Page and was named Betty. And it comes time to make this movie, and Disney says, man, you you can use Howard Hughes, and you can make the villain look like Errol Flynn if you want, but you cannot use Betty Page. You know, they didn't want anything to do with softcore porn, and they didn't want to have to worry about getting the rights from the real Betty Page uh, to use her likeness. And at the time when, when Stevens was doing the Rocketeer comics, he thought Betty Page was dead, and he didn't he didn't even ask to use her likeness he just he just drew her uh and he tells charming stories in interviews about finding out she was alive she'd had a rough life after her her heyday finding out she was alive uh meeting her when she was in her 70s he sent her some money to kind of uh acknowledge his debt to her and and he tells great stories about driving an elderly betty page around town to cash her social security checks so they they actually went on to become friends um, but the whole deal with, with the right to use her image was very lackadaisical. And lackadaisical is a word that has never been applied to Disney lawyers. So <laughs> for the movie, Betty became Jenny, played by the transcendent Jennifer Connelly. Oh, yes. And um, we're not there in the, in the movie minutes yet, but I'm probably not going to be around when we see Jenny pulling on her stockings. And that's, that <laughs> shot is a direct homage to the character's origin as Betty Page
0: yeah it's it, it, he did i mean and, and from what i understand with dave stevens not only did he uh provide proper compensation for uh for betty but he also got other people who had been using her likeness and had suggested to them you know the right thing to do is to uh to give this this woman who's you know the queen of the pinups uh the proper due for for not not, not just recognizing her but actually you know get, giving her giving her uh, monetary compensation for this thing and and he was quite a uh uh, an advocate uh, uh, for for a lot of places. With, yeah, with, he really with became
2: her friend and ch- uh, champion. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, some of the other changes that were made during the uh, when the move from comic book to uh, to screen was that the uh, the original designer of uh, the rocket pack, the the X three, was not Howard Hughes, but it was uh, Doc Savage. Right. right, and and the uh, early. Uh... Um, and, of course, I can remember Monk, but I can't remember the other fellow that was one of uh, uh, Savage's associates. They play major parts in the in the original Rocketeer comic book series. Uh, and, uh, unfortunately, they were owned by, I think Warner Brothers owns the character characters of Doc Savage, and Disney just didn't want to cough up the cash. So, suddenly, a public persona like Howard Hughes was... Was brought in as the new uh, uh, the new hero or, or founder of the uh, the Sirius X three rocket pack. I'm trying to think of the other. Ma- that's mostly the 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 most major of changes is the origin and the girlfriend. But I think they just kind of built it more up as uh, the 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 other characters that are in the show are kind of combinations from uh, from the different comic book uh, the character the same names just different. They they do different jobs here. Goose right. and Skeets are uh, are different uh, characters from the comic book. And are more mechanical friends rather than people we, we don't go into their backstories that much
2: yeah I've, I've read the comics and I think the movie is a pretty pretty faithful translation um, take keeping into account the as you said the doc Savage they couldn't get doc Savage and they didn't want to use betty page and and I think from what I've read Stevens understood all that and uh, considering some of the some of the compromises Disney had asked him to make at various times, I think he, he got off pretty well. Uh, as I understand it, Disney wanted to set the movie in modern day. And uh, they didn't think anybody would care to watch a movie set in the 1930s. And Steven says, well, what about that Indiana Jones thing? And Disney said, oh, yeah, yeah, well, that, that, that's true. Okay. So they let him set it in the you know 1930s. But uh, he had to fight him on some things like that 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 in retrospect sounds stupid, like you idiots. why would you set the Rocketeer in modern days but uh you know th- these were fights he had to have to really get his vision on the screen
0: right I and mean, he
2: took yeah. a very active co-producer role too. He wasn't just one of these authors. What usually happens is is if you're a cartoonist, you sell your you sell your stuff to a studio you sell your rights and you're just you're out of the picture they don't want to hear from you and you don't get to go on set and you've got nothing to say about it uh Stevens wasn't like that he I guess had the the cloud or the uh, my way or the highway attitude to, to get some things done his way and have a a substantive say in how it came out.
0: There, there are stories coming from the, uh, the production side of this saying that he would provide very copious notes to Johnson, every, Joe Johnson, the director, every morning of like, here's what you need to know and here's how here's how this kind of a scene would be handled back then in the 30s. This is what they would have been doing. So as a technical, he was almost there as an auxiliary technical advisor, not just from an art direction point of view, but from a technical uh, viewpoint. He knew every little uh, scintilla of uh, operation on, on the screen. And That's right. And
2: that that came out of his meticulous way of working, too, is, is when he drew the comics in the first place, he had – Blueprints of the buildings and he had you know detailed photos of what was hanging on the wall and so he took all this stuff he'd put together for the comic and brought it to the movie and said here i've i've done eighty percent of your job for you guys and they took it
1: <laughs> you know it's oh. it's funny I had just gone back and reread uh reread the comics recently uh you know the original ones and <clears throat> and it's it, in some ways it was surprising to me you know how how different the story was in certain spots uh you know he's um, we see this uh, top secret experimental airplane, and then there's a there's some great scenes in there with a P twenty six P shooter fighter, and and uh, Cliff is using the rocket pack to get, get involved in that, which is in the movie as we'll see later on becomes uh, becomes the clown act and the big standard biplane and and, and this sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> so and yet still in in my gut I look at the the movie and say oh my gosh it's got to be one of the most faithful adaptations ever when even we can we can list a lot of things that are some fairly major deviations, and then I think what finally occurred to me is that that uh, the movie isn't necessarily one hundred percent faithful to every detail of the plot, but I think it is one hundred percent faithful to Dave Stevens.
2: There you go. Yeah, I think that's right.
0: And it's 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 so easy to get lost in this movie. though. I mean, every every time you, you turn it on, you have to watch. You know, maybe roll back to another scene and keep watching this, right. this takeoff scene just so many little moments that you could you can picture storyboarded where uh, cliff is kissing his thumb and pushing it up against the the photo of Jenny uh, who's carefully taped up on his uh, on his dashboard there right uh, the uh, and that uh, uh, speaking of uh, scintillas earlier I noticed the, the scintilla magneto to, to the left that, of uh, of Jenny the magneto switch uh, there maybe Hal, this would be a good time to talk about uh, what a magneto is and what it does in terms of starting a plane and stuff
1: sure well it's uh how much time do we have (laughs) it's a it's a key component to the uh to the electrical system it is what is basically providing the uh the spark to the spark plugs so that uh so that the engine can fire uh most uh, most airplanes will have dual magnetos and that's uh, primarily for redundancy so each set of magnetos is connected to uh to its own set of plugs um you don't see much of the switch here but it's uh, those scintilla magnetos are these great you know it's a big uh kind of like a lever uh that uh, that just rotates in a circle around there and so you would have the off position you can see the off position there in in uh, this part of this minute like about second 12 or so uh and then you would have left and right and both and uh so as as part of uh, getting ready to fly the airplane. Once it's uh, started, you're running up the engine to a higher RPM. Then you're checking the magnetos, making sure that uh, uh, that both sides are working. And so you'd be cycling it from the left mag back to both and the right magneto, then back to both, making sure that there's not a huge RPM drop one or the other, because you, you want to make sure they're both at full strength instead of just saying, well, the right one is fine. Then if you lose that one in flight and find out then that the left one isn't working, you know, then you're in bigger trouble um i also love in the same shot of course that we talked about the picture there of Jennifer Connelly and the like, even the tape is sort of is period appropriate that's not you know modern day 3m scotch tape or anything it's this nice brown look and then i always I always remember um that uh, uh it probably about 4 years before this movie came out when i was finishing my uh, my initial uh, pilot's license i had a picture sort of similar to that of of uh of a girlfriend at the time and used to do exactly that had it taped up on the instrument panel when i would fly on my own and then and then one day i left it in the airplane and i didn't get it back for months because every (laughs) pilot that was flying that same airplane would take it and then sneak it to the next guy and everything else i had to go back and tell her said "Your, your picture's been on a lot of trips heidi but uh you know i did finally uh i did finally get it back
2: you're you're real popular with the boys down at the airport. Yeah, exactly, <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: A lot of thumbprints. Yeah, it's uh, wow. Uh, I have to ask about the goggles. He's inside of a canopy and right. he's putting on goggles. That's I mean I guess that's like belt and braces. Kind it of looks so
2: makes. good.
1: Yeah, it really does. Um, and I have I have flying goggles that I wear when I fly something open cockpit, and uh, you know they're absolutely mandatory for that. Inside, uh, boy, with the visibility is already so terrible uh, in the GB. You know, you've got that canopy that's just... It, it, it's practically a helmet already, uh, the canopy of the airplane around you. I can't imagine putting on goggles like that, but, you know, no spoilers, they do come in handy a bit later.
0: That That is true. Yeah. So I,
1: certainly have them with him, but... Uh,
0: I, I know a couple of people, which I can't i can't believe I'm saying this sentence, I know a couple of people who run airport museums, and one of the... <laughs> One of the hardest things to preserve are uh, former Flyers goggles because oh, there's yeah. uh, that foam that's just behind, the, you know, that's right behind the glass is the most fragile uh, type of rubber available. And everything, everything eats through it. It dries up very easily. So usually uh, someone, you know, a famous Flyers goggles will usually be left inside of a glass case and don't tap it or move it because the whole thing will crumble to dust. So when I, right. when I see this, I think... Wow, I, I don't even think the these movie goggles probably didn't survive that long.
1: I, yeah, I sure would think they wouldn't. Although I've got a I've got a pair of uh, RAF, it's a British Royal Air Force Mark 8 goggles on display on my mantle downstairs and they're it's something I'd like to restore at some point point. and um I snapped them up when I found them because they're in fair condition, which is in my experience was pretty unusual. Now granted that's, you know, uh, several several years newer than what we're seeing here in the in the film, and, and his goggles are period period appropriate, so it gets advanced a little bit, but still, as you said, they don't last.
0: Yeah, we do come by the uh, the wait for it uh, moment where we're about to see a, uh, a, a, a an interruption in continuity. We see uh, Cliff grabs the red handled c- control stick. Yes, and uh, he's in a yellow plane, so keep an eye on that uh, on that red uh, uh, handle. Ah, right. Uh, late for later in the later in the film.
1: <clears throat> you know, just tangentially really quickly right after right about second 18 or so right after the the kissing of the thumb in the picture um, you know we're panning across uh, the, the guys watching for him and just as we're getting to PV, there's this great refreshment stand back there with the old Coke logo and stuff on it But one thing I've never I've never quite been able to figure out there's a, a billboard on the side I don't know if it's just at a funny angle, but it's got the Pratt and Whitney engine logo on it, which is cool that's the engine that would be in the g b and was in the replica Pratt and Whitney wasp but it's uh it's very squished it should be a perfect circle and it's a really tall skinny oval and then it almost looks like there's it almost looks like a harley Davidson logo next to it that has that same sort yeah, of yeah I, I
0: was thinking especially with the co- the colors on that yeah. orange uh, Harley Davidson, yeah. and
2: it's and, not just a matter of perspective or anything like that. It's
1: actually—it's—it should be a matter of perspective, but it, it looks like we're looking at it just absolutely square on. So I'm going to keep my eyes open another minute, see if we get another angle on this refreshment stand and see what's up. Uh, what's you up? You know, there.
2: some people would say that if you're watching a movie and looking at the red stick in the refreshment stand, uh, the director's done something wrong.
1: <laughs> but, but then, i guess that's the
2: point of the podcast minute right right yeah, and
1: but, and I, when you've watched the movie you know countless scores of times then in order to yeah, notice and, these and, things then yeah at some point the director did something right
0: earlier this week when we were looking at hangar three the uh not only the pratt and whitney but the curtis sign was uh the curtis logo was uh, was on the hangar. So Pratt and Whitney seems to have quite a, a presence at this particular airport. I don't know sure. who they're selling to. I guess <laughs> aviators are are the only ones that are th- thinning around long enough to look at the billboards. Right. And then we go back to that that beautiful scene with uh, uh, Cliff, you know, Billy Campbell in the in the back of the Waco. I think now I'm trying to remember if this was this was seen. Or I think this is this may be the first time that we see this in the movie that he's you know there in the in the back of a of a biplane with a fake a fake, <laughs> a fake right. canopy and uh, like to make him look like he's in the front of a plane.
1: Yeah, I think this is the the first time we see that and it's it's remarkably well done. It makes a really good stand-in. You know, we're zoomed in tight enough that uh, you don't see much of the structure of the of the airplane, but yeah, this is a this is a Waco. I don't know for certain, but it's probably a UPF7. That would be sort of the most prevalent uh, type of the open cockpit biplane. Some of the Wacos had a little had a more of a cabin structure around the rear cockpit, so that wouldn't have worked. But they built uh, the canopy and the yellow shield, glare shield and some of the turtle deck of the GB so they could shoot him back there. And, uh, That's how they it's did really, that shot. It's really convincing, yeah.
2: So they actually took him up in the plane just in the, in the back right. seat.
1: And I had read somewhere, I don't know how true this is, uh, but that he was actually pretty uncomfortable with flying and, and t- I read the same thing yeah.
2: that Billy Campbell really did not like to fly and oh, really had really? to overcome some stuff to yeah. get uh even get him on a plane
1: well then so to tuck good. him in there in that sort of claustrophobic little spot in this old biplane with this this uh contraption around him that had to be something but
2: and yeah. it, every scene of a guy with a jetpack being hoisted through the air is not Billy
1: Campbell
2: <laughs> <Excellent>.
1: <laughs> now next you're going to tell me the jetpack doesn't really work Brian so let's tread no, lightly no, no. here <laughs>
2: No, I wouldn't crush your dreams like that, Hal.
0: <laughs> uh, from what I understand, this is, this similar thing had been used for uh, shooting the Great Waldo Pepper, which had been done back in the mid seventies. Yeah, Waldo so Pepper it, was it,
1: it, uh, what seventy four, I think seventy three, seventy four, maybe seventy five. Yeah,
0: and they had they had kind of pioneered this idea of you know why don't we just stick another cab you know cockpit on the back and, and shoot right? And so uh, the Robert Redford scenes were shot in a, in a similar method. Can I? Um, so we.
1: Go ahead. Uh, can I tell a super short Waldo Pepper story? Sure. If I promise to keep it short. So there's uh, there's a scene in the movie where uh, Bo Svensson is flying and Waldo has sabotaged uh, the wheels on his biplane. And uh, he, he's flying a Curtis Jenny, but then the, we see him doing a crash landing into a swamp and there's no real effects. They really crashed an airplane. But they swapped out the airplane to a, a more plentiful type, a, a de Havilland Tiger Moth. So that airplane crashed in the swamp in, I want to say, 74 uh, on for the making of the film. And then it was pulled out and put in the corner of a hangar and sort of disassembled. Didn't fly again until 2006. And then just a couple months after it first flew again, I gave my wife a ride in that airplane. Oh, cool. Wow. So it was based up in Canada. And that was, uh, so that's my, my weird Waldo Pepper connection. Back to the Rocketeer. Okay. That's we'll tricky. save that for the Waldo Pepper minute.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're watching the... Uh... Uh, the, the first throttle up here right. as, as he's getting ready to, ro- to, to start as a first movement and I just I love those uh, the the furring strips on the uh, on the interior of the plane it's just the just the carpentry work on that one little scene it's like wow what a what a great job of carpentry Uh but I, it's, it's only uh, matched by the poor welding work on the uh, <laughs> <laughs> on the metal frame. rough. Well, uh,
2: I just want to say from just from a storytelling perspective, what, what the listeners don't realize probably, Jim, is that you sent me this minute of movie to watch in preparation for this this podcast, which is fantastic. But I I, I watched sixty seconds of this movie, just this minute, and man, I cannot wait to watch the rest of it. I mean, even here on minute four. The, the way they're structured, the action of of, you know, the, the title and the clip and the clip and a clip and and you see Cliff in the plane. And it's like, man, I want to know what happens to this guy. To, there's just right here at the start before you even start telling a story. There's some good storytelling going on.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, and and it it tells it so. It, re, it relies on the visual so much. Every little scene, it's like here's a bit of information. Here's a little bit more of information. Even and and it, it's it's even if it's momentary, it's correct. Like we we see the, uh, uh, the the tachometer, and it's showing how many how how long the engine's been running. The engine has been running one minute. And so this is like I the first see. the first go. You know, it yeah, it's, really puts you in the time and place.
1: It's and it's really funny. You mentioned that uh, that. Tachometer, Jim, because I'll be honest and say that I hadn't noticed it before. In all the times I've seen this movie in the last, you know, twenty-five plus years, I hadn't noticed it until we were getting ready to do this and we sort of studying it again. And to be uh, just a minor correction, it's actually been running for one tenth of an hour. So it's been oh, one tenth of an so hour. it's so it's been running for six minutes, which is minutes. just about right for you know starting it up and taxing it out and getting ready to ready to go. And that would have been the easiest detail in the world to ignore. And, and not bother with, and that it, it would have been somewhat non-trivial to, uh, to set that up and put that together. And it's just, it blows my mind that they, that, uh, they bothered with it.
0: Wow. I, I'm assuming, now I have, I have no idea, but I am assuming that the uh, the, the Rev up there as it goes to 1800 that's a that's about right for a GB is that uh,
1: that's about where you yeah where you'd be starting it you notice on this this tack they do have the colored markings at the top that's a little bit anachronistic we didn't really see those until more a little bit more post-world war ii started seeing the friendly markings but the red line is at 2600 rpm and uh and sort of what we call the top of the green would be uh is there at 2300 rpm so you know, most traditional general aviation airplanes, you're going with basically full throttle on takeoff. But an airplane like this, uh, with that low visibility, all of that torque, um, a very light airplane. The the Model Z was basically the smallest, lightest airplane they could build around that giant engine, that uh, Pratt-Whitney 985. And so it wouldn't be uncommon at all, especially on a first flight, uh, number one, to take add the power very slowly. And number two, uh, probably not use full power uh, on that first uh, on that first takeoff, um, there's a there's a tremendous. I don't want to go too far into the weeds here, but uh, on too a tail too late. All right, then <laughs> that's true. We're talking about a movie one minute at a time. I think <laughs> I think we live in the weeds. That's why um, the weeds were invented. That's yeah. why exactly. I've got a timeshare in the weeds. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, there's there's a combination of forces of torque and gyroscopic precession and what we call P factor that all conspire to take this airplane and want to make it swerve off the runway as soon as you're adding the power to it. Uh, not to mention the fact that the tailwheel itself isn't actually steerable, so you're only steering with brakes and and rudder and as the tailwheel sw- uh, swivels on a free caster. So everything you're doing when it comes to sort of keeping this airplane straight on the ground, especially as you're getting ready to accelerate and take off, you're doing sort of smoothly and gently.
0: And that, that first motion scene, I, I do love the way that they had the static. They use a static camera for first. We're, we're looking at cliff you know driving off to the right and right. showing the wheels and then behind it the uh the oil derrick which still confuses me because i i'm not exactly sure where Chaplin field is i keep <laughs> thinking it's van nuys airport it might be burbank but they they didn't drill they didn't drill for oil that far north this is more like a culver city thing so I'm somewhere in los angeles but i i think it's just a little bit of a poetic le- or artistic license to uh, to have a derrick in the background okay. just to show that yes this is southern california and this is what they do down there
1: and i love that the uh, derrick is literally out in the weeds
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> so uh so he starts he starts his run and uh we're watching him uh he- heading past <laughs> past the yeah, credits for uh, uh who wrote the story danny bilson and paul de mayo and, right. and bill dear we see so, that uh, beautiful
1: uh white monocoop uh biplane or human monoplane back there early racer yeah
0: yeah, and uh, let, let's talk very briefly about uh, the guys that rewrote this. Uh, Bilson and DeMeo were hired in the mid '80s, like '85, right after the Rocketeer was out, uh, to concoct a a way of turning the comic book into the into the screenplay. And they they wrote a whole script in '85. Uh, got turned down by Disney a bunch of times. They were like, No, this is this isn't what we want. This is what we want. And they'd throw out entire scenes. They brought in the nazis they brought the nazis out and uh they finally wound up with uh after getting beaten up pretty bad they finally came out with with a screenplay that uh, a decade later uh disney would finally film most of their work was with uh, tv and for some strange reason they did a lot of james bond video games uh together oh, really both uh both uh, bilson and mayo the only other thing i know about the, i know about the bilson family is rachel bilson uh, his daughter was on uh, The OC. She's a popular character. I think she was also in uh She might have also been in The Sixth Sense. I can't remember, but it's, I, 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 I should look that up on IMDb before I start getting on a podcasting show. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah. the the other the LFL that's listed there, Bill Deere, he was a director for a bunch of TV shows. He did Saturday Night Live. He did. Uh, uh, he worked with Mike Nesmith on television parts. Oh. He worked with Spielberg on amazing stories. So, uh, his probably biggest credit was uh, he was the director of Harry and the Hendersons. And then we get past that, uh, that screenplay.
1: My, uh, my favorite all time Bigfoot comedy, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's, it's a crowded it's right genre. but <laughs> yeah.
2: And Bill and but, DeMeo did the, uh, they did the Flash TV show, too. I, that's I right. That yeah. from that. Um, and
0: that's only a year before this, so uh, the, the oh, yeah. old
2: Flash from nineteen nineties, yeah. yeah, uh, which the, was pretty good. John,
0: John Wesley's Ship. He was he's my Flash. You know, so yeah. everybody has a doctor <laughs> who. I right. think right. he's my Flash. Yeah. So we watch. Uh, we watch the GB just you know going to V one there and getting ready to rotate. Uh, how close can you be to a runway? Because <laughs> these guys seem <laughs> abnormally <laughs> close for uh, for a takeoff.
1: Well, <clears throat> there's a couple things to remember. I mean, number one, this is a uh, there were fewer rules then than there are now. Um, there were certainly no, you know, chain link airport fences up uh, up and around and everything else. But you know, I've got to say, I uh, I'm weirdly lucky in the aviation world. I grew up on a private airstrip out uh, southeast of Seattle. It's a grass runway with that's uh, about a half mile long with houses up and down every side or both sides rather. And you know, that was me. Uh, anytime somebody was going to take off her land as I'd be standing out right about where these guys are watching the airplanes come and go and just, you know, living that spoiled life of being totally, uh, totally immersed in aviation. So, you know, all that said, um, the first flight of a, of an airplane like the GB, where knowing that the pilot cannot see straight ahead at all. I, I might be a little bit further back. I might be across the <laughs> runway where those two guys are, where they can tuck into the hangar if need be over by the monocoop, But, uh, um, because yeah, you just cannot overstate that you, you see absolutely zero looking straight ahead in the in the GB on the ground. Um, there's two of the Model Z uh, replicas, I and mean, we've talked about them the GBs a bit before. But um, I sat in uh, sort of the sister ship to this airplane that was used in this movie, and it's ridiculous. You you just you cannot see a thing, and then as soon as they bolt that that uh, canopy on over your head, it's you're you're out of luck.
0: Your IFR every day, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Did they did they not believe in uh, foreign object debris? I, I just was, I keep seeing that gigantic tumbleweed parked right next to the runway, <laughs> right. you know, right in the right in the prop wash.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, not it as was, much it was of simpler times, Yeah, simpler yeah. times when, when a tumbleweed can make an honest living for crying yeah. out loud. <laughs> yeah, um, not as much of a factor in a in a propeller driven airplane as it is with a with a turbine like a jet. But you know, still something to consider. But it just looks yeah. cool, doesn't it? And, uh, oh yeah, yeah.
0: And we, we get down to the end of the runway, and the, the chase plane is given that uh, that great image of the number four pulling up uh, off the uh, off the end of the the runway. There, such a and and followed by James Horner's uh, timpanies and the and the and the trumpets as it as it lifts up. I want to watch this movie again. Now.
1: Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Let's just pause this, and I'll just sit down and watch the yeah. movie. Yeah. And you know, and then of course, right after that lift off, we're we're back to uh, to PV and the gang. So you know, looking at that neat shot, they're all lined up. And I I love the expression on PV's face there. He's you know he's always given Cliff such a hard time, but he's so happy and and proud yeah. right then.
0: Yeah. yeah, he's he's not seeing a ball of fire at the end of the runway, so he's and very again, that's,
2: that's still that's good storytelling, man. We we're four minutes into the movie. I don't know if anybody said a single word, and yet, <laughs> man, we we know these characters. We care about them already, and right. and you know we we want Cliff to get that plane off the ground, and we want we want PV to be that happy and proud as he is and it's great it's just great
0: my biggest question in this entire minute is who's that guy behind Malcolm I mean there's there's skeets to the left just out of picture he's Goose. There's Malcolm, yep. and then there's this other guy, and he's been he's been hovering around in the background. I have never been able to find out who he is. He's not listed in the credits, but he's just always there. He's
1: just, and I he's he's not his body language says he's not quite as interested in what's going on as everybody else. He's <laughs> he's looking, but he's 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 leaning away and he's he's facing the other direction. That's a yeah, it's, it's uh, a really good uh, my question. Guess
0: he's, he's one of the screenwriters. He might have been you know Bilson or. or <laughs> I, I was Probably wondering if it was
2: Dave Stevens. Stevens so, has a cameo in here somewhere, but
0: yeah. no, he, he's he's later on in the uh, in the right. newsreel. So we'll, you've already we'll done that
2: later. research. All right, good. Yeah, he's, he's coming up, but
0: uh, he actually he picked an interesting role. We'll, we'll talk about that about an hour from now. All right. Um, so come back uh, in a couple
2: months. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> It'll be there. But this is this is a great, uh, great. I do not know where Santa Maria, California, is though. Is that in Southern California or is it? Uh... Any, anybody have Brian an would you
1: know better than I do at, you've you've you stayed in California I left 40 years ago <laughs> you know
2: I'm not sure it exists I'm looking up all where yeah yeah there it is uh it's on the coast it's uh 120 miles northwest of Los Angeles the computer tells me so what, it's uh,
0: Santa Barbara they call it I don't yeah know.
2: it's heading towards Santa Barbara exactly right
0: okay I, so that's where all this was filmed and uh I guess similar similar uh climate and uh uh terrain
2: um but it's just north, a... just north of santa barbara that's where okay.
0: it is oh, okay yeah the likelihood of having bean fields is, is high it's stunning that they did manage to hide all the you know microwave masts and cell phone towers and things so it's it, I, I guess that that has to be more they have to be more creative uh as the years have gone by from what i understand there is a new rocketeer uh movie on the horizon so uh I, I would imagine that it would be harder to film things like that. Well, they're going to probably be using more CGI. it all be
2: CGI. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure curious about that. What I've read, it's, it's still supposed to take place in this world and this continuity, but Sea Court has vanished. Um, which was you know, it's 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 kind of like
2: the 50s, right? Isn't it like 20 years later or 15 years later?
1: I thought it was, Is what in, I've read. I thought it was immediately post-war, but then again, uh, all right. Okay.
0: I, if, if they're trying to find a hidden map to, uh, to the rocketeer that's hidden in a robot i'm uh, <laughs> running out of ideas but we'll, we'll see
1: the last rocketeer yes yeah after uh the rocket awakens
0: yeah but uh anyway it, it seems like so far it's a good morning for cliff he's uh he's up and around and uh and, and about to do go into the pattern here i guess i guess we'll leave him up up here as we uh as we find out what what more things are going to be going on in socal uh, as as the uh, we'll we'll pick all this up tomorrow but uh, Brian, thanks so much for being on here uh, with this. Episode. I'm sure I'm sure we will have you on future episodes, but uh, this is a good a good start to the week uh, having you on uh, to to talk about all of this.
1: And again, oh, Brian, it was. Oh, excuse me, Brian. I was just saying it was a real pleasure for me too. What a what a thrill! I'm such a such an admirer of your work and grateful for our friendship.
2: Oh, me too. Thank you, Hal. Appreciate it.
0: So everybody that's out there right now, please Google Brian Fries. Actually, Google him or, or more like Amazon him. If you go to Amazon, you, go. you can find a lot of the
1: works. The <laughs> so work much the better. So, and yes. I'm sure we could probably put some of those up on uh, the RocketeerMinute.com. Jim, what do I think, you think? I think
0: you, can find, I think you can find that right on this on this week's episode, on, on this episode page right here. So please do go to rocketeerminute.com. Uh, it'll be right there where you can get for all your shopping needs. Uh, we'll be right there.
1: Uh, we'll include some weed killer as well. Yeah.
0: <laughs> get rid of the tumbleweeds yeah. <laughs> yeah get rid of those tumbleweed be gone yes but fo- follow us also on the on social media you can find us on Twitter uh, Rocketeer Minute and also out on Facebook at the Bulldog Cafe the Rocketeer's Bulldog Cafe where everybody gets together and talks about how much we talk too much on the, <laughs> on the show but that's where you're here it's a podcast it's a Anyway, let's let's check this out tomorrow as we as we finish up our very first week here on the Rocketeer. Uh, Brian, thanks again, and uh, Hal, we will talk we will talk again tomorrow. So until next time, over and out. Go get it, kid.